The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. It's colder, but uh, we're going to have a warm time together. And uh, this evening, what I want to do is introduce uh, our theme and uh, uh, begin to lay some of the groundwork for what I want to say and what I want us to talk about together over the, uh, these uh, couple of days, over the next uh, five sessions. And my theme for this uh, weekend is God's Mountain Men, uh, which I hope you all uh, progressively gather the significance of as we actually take a look at some of the key issues that arise in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for us as men. And to begin, I want to, uh, for us to read together from Deuteronomy chapter 27, Deuteronomy chapter 27, and reading verse uh, 11 through 28, Deuteronomy 27, 11 through 28, as we consider what it means to be God's mountain men. Deuteronomy 27, 11 through 26. Actually, I beg your pardon, we'll go through, we'll go through um, chapter 28 to verse 6, beginning of verse 11. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. When you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, and all these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt, and all the people shall answer, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law, and the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country." Blessed shall you be, shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And two verses from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth 
and taught them, saying. And we're going to leave it there in terms of the reading from Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is without doubt one of the most famous, most noted passages of Scripture. Many non-believers will uh, say that they are aware of or know the golden rule uh, or the something of the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the, on the Mount. And yet this passage actually remains one of the most poorly understood and one of the most poorly applied passages of the Bible in the modern church. And very often at the same time it's been hijacked for a completely alien purpose. But the relevance of this message, this sermon, of Jesus' sermon to us, is of, is of particular importance in our own cultural moment, uh, not only for our personal lives, but for our family life, our life as a church, in our age, in our day, and uh, corporately as a nation. Because what we are confronted with on the mountain is a Christian manifesto. A charter, if you will, for men to live by. It exalts the grace of God and it exalts the law of God. And the purpose is that we as men of God will be brought into conformity with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have in Matthew 5, and the reason I read a considerable portion of the law from Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, which, by the way, was Jesus' most off-cited book in the New Testament. Jesus cited Deuteronomy more than any other part of the Bible. And Jesus goes up onto a mountain to expound the law of God and give us its meaning for our lives as members of the kingdom of God, as members of the new humanity in Jesus Christ. Tells us about the nature of the blessed life, what it means to be blessed men. And it calls us, before all things, to obedience to God and to his word. And we are living in a critical time with respect to this and one of the things that I've been asked to do while I'm here is to uh, at least say something make a few remarks about our cultural moment and some specific applications which I will be doing into various areas during our time together but we are living in a, in a time in the, even in the church now in North America where we are surrounded by what has been called by some researchers moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And uh, if you're wondering what that means, I'm going to uh, just read to you a, a small portion of an article uh, that uh, was published by Albert Moeller in the US about the new American religion. The new American religion. And this is what uh, he, he writes about uh, a study that has been conducted. He says this, When Christian Smith and his fellow researchers with the National Study of Youth and Religion at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill when they took a close look at the religious beliefs held by American teenagers, they found that the faith held and described by most adolescents came down to something the researchers identified as moralistic, therapeutic deism. It consists of beliefs like these. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Five, good people go to heaven when they die. 
That is that in sum is the creed to which many adolescent much adolescent faith can be reduced. After conducting more than 3000 interviews with American adolescents, the researchers reported that when it came to the most crucial questions of faith and beliefs, many adolescents responded with a shrug and whatever. I'm sure you've heard that before. Because uh, it became clear that most religious, religious teenagers either do not really comprehend what their own religious tradition says they're supposed to believe, or they do not understand it and simply do not care to believe it. Either way, it is apparent that most religiously affiliated U.S. teens are not particularly interested in espousing and upholding the beliefs of their faith traditions, or that their communities of faith are failing in attempts to educate their youth or both. As the researcher explains, for most teens, nobody has to do anything in life, including anything to do with religion. Whatever is just fine if that's what a person wants. The casual whatever that marks so much of the American moral and theological landscape, adolescent and otherwise, is a substitute for serious and responsible thinking. More importantly, it is a verbal cover for an embrace of relativism. Amazingly, teenagers are not unarticulate in general. As the researchers found, many teenagers know abundant details about the lives of favorite musicians and television stars, or about what it takes to get into a good college, but, they, but most are not very clear on who Moses and Jesus were. The obvious conclusion, this suggests that a strong, visible, salient, or intentional faith is not operating in the foreground of most young people's lives. The moralistic therapeutic deism that these researchers identify as the most fundamental faith posture and belief system of America, in a larger sense, reflects the culture as a whole. As Christian Smith and Melinda Denton explain, moralistic therapeutic deism is about inculcating a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. These individuals, whatever their age, believe that religion should be centered in being nice, a posture that many believe is directly violated by assertions of strong theological conviction. This deism also is also about providing therapeutic benefits to its adherents. As the researchers explained, this is not a religion of repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of a sovereign divinity, of steadfastly being in prayer, of faithfully observing holy days, of building character through suffering, of basking in God's love and grace, of spending oneself in gratitude and love for the cause of justice, etc. Rather, what appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. It is about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems and getting along amiably with other people. Smith and his colleagues recognize that the deity behind moralistic therapeutic deism is very much like the deistic god of the 18th century philosophers. This is not the god who thunders from the mountain, nor a god who will serve as judge. This, un this undemanding deity is more interested in solving our problems and in making people happy. In short, God is something like a combination of divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become, become too personally involved in the process. Now it's into this context, into a context that would be arguably much more Christianized than Canada today, that we as men are called of God to be leaders in our home, in our families, of our children, and in our churches. And yet, for many of us, we have been ourselves exposed to the same idea of God. Not the Christ who thunders from the mountain, but a sermon which says, perhaps your impression of the Sermon on the Mount remains, be nice. Doesn't sound very masculine, does it? For a men's retreat. And often, uh, that is how we perceive the requirement of the Christian faith as men. That the objective is that we are nice, and that we're kind. Now the reason I chose the term God's mountain man is that most of us think about the mountain man as a hurly-burly, bearded, 
uh, rugged individual who is a picture of masculinity. Uh, I was wearing a beard until the beginning of this year. I've worn a beard for 10 years. My children had never seen me without a beard. Uh, and the reason I grew it in the first place in my uh, late 20s was that uh, I didn't look old enough to be a minister of any description. Uh, so I thought I ought to grow one to uh, garner more respect. And my wife recently told me I looked plenty old enough to shave it now. Uh, so I did. And uh, some have said uh, I look less dignified. Others have said it takes 10 years off. Whichever. I, I'll take the second. But... The God that confronts us today in much of the church is this God of moralistic, therapeutic deism. He's the butler, the cosmic therapist. Not the God who calls us to his kingdom purposes and commands us in terms of his word, in terms of his law, to be men of God. Now... In the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, and don't forget the focus of our time together is going to be Matthew chapter 5, but in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, which I'm sure are familiar to all of you, Matthew uh, 1 through 4, we have a copious referencing of the Old Testament throughout those opening chapters. Uh, That begins with the lineage of the Lord Jesus being traced right back to Abraham. That's how Matthew's gospel begins. And then Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. He's led there by the devil. And he quotes there repeatedly the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes God's law and he says, it is written. So what we have set up for us in Matthew 1 through 4 is very clearly we're told who Jesus is. We're given the Lord Jesus Christ's identity. That's now clear by the time the reader gets to Matthew chapter 5. The reader knows who Jesus Christ is. Now Matthew tells us at the beginning of chapter 5 that Jesus went up onto a mountain. And I've read to you at length what uh, Moses was required to do in Deuteronomy in going up upon the mountain and announcing the law of God. Well, the literary significance of this to a Jewish reader that Jesus went up onto the mountain and he got his 12 disciples to sit down would not have been lost on them. The law is given through Moses on Mount Sinai. At Mount Ebal, the curse of God is pronounced. From Mount Gerizim, his blessings upon faithfulness are declared. We've just read them. So when Jesus goes up on the mountain, what is being conjured up in our minds by Matthew who's writing this gospel is all three of these mountains. He wants the reader to think about the mountains of God in the Old Testament and what God said from them. And this is how the Beatitudes actually begin with blessing This is what the blessed life looks like. And the Sermon on the Mountain ends with God's judgment upon every house that is not built upon the rock of Christ in Matthew chapter 7, verses 26 through 27 there. Now, in their uh, commentary on the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, Beale and Carson uh, say this about the Sermon on the Mount. Far from establishing a new law, Jesus came to fulfill and thus transcend the Mosaic covenant. That is, in power, finality, and glory, the law of God, or the the covenant, the renewed covenant, is here fulfilled in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The covenant is being remade, if you will, in Jesus' life and put into force now in the life of the Lord Jesus. When you ask yourself, you read the the Gospels and you ask yourself, what is it that the Pharisees and the scribes were always trying to trap Jesus on? You know, he was repeatedly being tested by the teachers of the law, by the scribes and the Pharisees. What is it that they were trying to establish? They were trying to establish and show that Jesus was a lawbreaker. That he was a violator of God's word. 
If you study the Gospels carefully, you look at the Synoptic Gospels carefully, you will find that in each case where Jesus is tested and challenged, he's either being challenged about his identity and his right to speak as he does, or he's being challenged about the law of God. And every time that Jesus proves and shows that he has come to put into force everything that God has said. He's come to fulfill all righteousness. And in those things which foreshadowed, were temporary shadows of his work in the sacrifices of the law, they come to their completion in the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice at the cross. So that he is the fullness, the consummation. He surpasses the old in power, finality, and glory. And as the sovereign lawgiver, as God's very own mountain man, it's interesting how important the mountains are. When uh, there's two other mountain men appear in the, in the Gospels with Jesus, do you remember who they are? Moses and Elijah. Where do they appear? On the mountain of transfiguration. Do you remember that Jesus takes two of his disciples with him onto the mountain? Or is it three? And as he goes up there, he is transfigured before them. And Moses and Elijah speak with Jesus on the mountain. Why Moses and Elijah? Why not Jeremiah and, uh, and Job? Why not uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, because Moses represents what? The law. Elijah represents the prophets. Two big, burly, bearded, we suspect, mountain men appear with Jesus on the mountain. And they speak about, we're told in the Greek, the exodus that he is about to accomplish. The exodus that he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That is the deliverance of his new people, his new humanity, the deliverance that he is going to bring about for the people of God. So he, as the sovereign lawgiver, as the greater Moses now, goes up onto this mountain and authoritatively interprets the law of God. And he alone has the authority to set aside or amend any provisions in his covenant. And he has 12 disciples with him. The 12 represent what? The 12 tribes who were right there at the mountain of cursing and blessing in the old covenant. The 12 tribes are represented now by the 12 disciples as it had been delivered by Moses to the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus now renews the covenant, developing its inward implications. And I want to say at this point, because there is a good deal of teaching out there today, that would lead us to the view that Jesus was some kind of anti-establishment hippie driving around Palestine in his camper van uh, as a revolutionary uh, 1960s radical telling people to stop worrying about God's commands and God's laws and start putting out their green bins. And you hear the Sermon on the Mount interpreted in these terms today. That is emphatically not what Jesus is doing. In his uh, very important book, Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Scholars Distort the Gospels, the evangelical scholar Dr. Craig Evans, and I recommend his book to you actually if you get a chance to pick it up. It's very readable. Uh, it's written for the layperson. He's a professor at Acadia Divinity College. He says this, that even some theologians have assumed, and I quote, that Jesus criticized the religion of his people for being legalistic or pharisaic, for being caught up with externals, uh, and for having little or no place for grace, mercy, and love. There is no evidence that Jesus opposed Judaism or criticized it as a religion of externals and rituals. Jesus loved his people and longed for their salvation. His original disciples, all of them Jewish, embraced the same hope. Jesus accepted the authority of the Torah. He did not reject the Torah as, some, as has sometimes been asserted. What Jesus opposed were certain interpretations and applications of the law. In the so-called antitheses of the Sermon on the Mount, that is, 
You have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus does not contradict the commandments of Moses. He challenges conventional interpretations and applications of those laws. The antithetical, but I say to you, does not oppose the commandments themselves. For example, Jesus agrees that killing is wrong, but adds that hatred is wrong too. Jesus does not oppose restitution, an eye for an eye, but he does oppose using this command as a pretext for revenge, end quote. So what uh, we're being told here is that when we come to this sermon, this uh, exposition of the law that Jesus gives on the mountain, we need to be careful to make sure we read it as it was intended to be read. Uh, that we understand Jesus as the first century Jew that he was, not a late 20th century revolutionary. And impose our idea of Jesus, uh, a very recent idea of Jesus, as a kind of Gandhi, upon a text that is saying something completely different. What we have in these chapters is in fact a charter for God's kingdom people and he tells us here the way of life for his children we're told in Matthew 4:23 that Christ has come just a few verses earlier preaching the kingdom of God preaching the kingdom of God that's what Jesus was doing he wasn't actually preaching to tell people how to get to heaven I know that uh, as modern evangelicals we tend to think that, but he wasn't preaching about telling people how to get to heaven. He was preaching the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God. Part of that is how we access the kingdom of God through repentance and faith. But the end was not getting a few people out of the earth into heaven. It was preaching the kingdom, the reign of God. And speaking as God... Jesus does not undermine himself. Now we're told in the book of Hebrews that the rock which followed the people of Israel in the wilderness, Paul says, was uh, Christ. Actually, it's in uh, 1 Corinthians. It tells us it's Christ. In Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, we read all about the fact that Christ is present and at work in one house, one house, in both the Old and the New Covenant. It's one house. Jesus does not come as God and overturn himself and contradict himself and speak against himself. He is the God of both the Old and the New Testaments, which, by the way, are not canonical labels. Okay, the, church, the Bible of the early church was the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. The Gospels were, began to circulate probably around A.D. 30, somewhere there. Uh, and the letters were steadily written over the next 50 years. But the Bible, for the most part, for the church, don't forget the canon of Scripture wasn't closed till towards the end of the 4th century in terms of gathering it all together was this word. So the Lord Jesus comes and he lays out the way of life for his kingdom people. And it doesn't mean there aren't any changes when he comes preaching the kingdom of God. Evans points out, he says, his authority did not undermine the authority of the Torah. It explained it and applied it in new ways, conditioned by his strong sense of the dawning of the kingdom rule of God and the changes it would bring. And one of those changes that is established is that on the mountainside, these disciples, these 12 disciples, now represented the covenant people, the new covenant people, the church of the living God. Israel as a nation was being set aside. Jesus emphatically excommunicates Israel as a nation, not the Jews, but Israel as a nation. He says, your house is left to you desolate. He uh, promises the, uh, foretells the total destruction of Jerusalem and the diaspora. The 12 disciples now represent the kingdom of God, the church 
of the living God. And the crowds that gathered to hear this message as Jesus spoke represented the world to whom the disciples would take this message. Now, one of the things we see at the beginning of Matthew 5 is that Jesus is our teacher and Lord, and he sat his disciples down upon the mountain. So sometimes we see the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount as addressed to the whole world, but first and foremost, it is addressed to the world, but first and foremost, it's addressed to us as believers. He sat his disciples down. He sits us down. And he says, this word, this message from the mountain is for you. Jesus did tell many parables, parables about the kingdom of God. These are often emphasized today. But here Jesus gives us didactic teaching, exposition of his law. To be a disciple, uh, to be a student, of course, means to have a teacher. And if we are disciples of Christ as Christians, we are to be taught by him. It means to regard ourselves as his students. Do you know that in all probability, the way that the New Testament corpus that we have today was uh, recorded was that the, uh, the disciples memorized Jesus' teaching. That's how most teaching of the period was. Uh, and it's, uh, the New Testament relatively is a small corpus. The teaching of Jesus is a small corpus of material. They would have memorized his word. As students... Memorized it, his sayings, his teachings. They'd have committed it completely to memory. Well, we are those who have a teacher. And as men, we want to sit on the mountain with Christ and hear what he has to say about living as men. I want to suggest to you this week that if we really want to be men of God in our day and in our age, we have to hear this message from the mountain afresh in a way that we perhaps have not heard it before. That there is a kingdom charter here for us as men that will transform not only ourselves and our families, but our churches and our communities and cities and even nations. Now this was the purpose of Jesus' teaching. It must be noted, of course, that in our own institutions of learning where teachers are in our schools, in our universities and so forth, they are representatives today of what has been called an adversary culture. And we need to be conscious of this, especially at the university level today. Now, uh, I will be making a few comments, as I said, about cultural issues. That will include education. Tomorrow I'm going to show you... Uh, some material uh, on PowerPoint that will, I think, surprise you, uh, and it's going to challenge you. But part of all of this is that when we submit to God, we submit to being his students, to being his pupils. And in the uh, institutions of today, many professors see their role as political and ideological, not actually educational. I may even read you a letter that I just received just a few days ago from a teacher out in Western Canada, public school teacher, and what she had to say about a lecture that I just gave in California. She traveled down uh, from California to a conference down there, and uh, we're now communicating. And uh, she was very candid about her experience. The agenda of many teachers today, unlike the agenda of Christ... The agenda of many professors is to separate students from their Christian beliefs, to alienate them from their moral commitments, and to radically reorient them in terms of an alien faith. I'm referring to, again, to Al Mohler, the Baptist uh, leader, pastor, teacher down at Southern Baptist in uh, Kentucky, I think it is. And he uh, published an article recently called, And Then They Are All Mine, The Real Agenda of Some College Professors. This is what he says. Listen closely. One of the greatest privileges offered to a college or university professor is the stewardship of learning and teaching as well as having influence over the minds and worldviews of young people at one of the most formative periods of life. Most new professors find the experience to be nearly intoxicating. Intoxicating. 
And even the most seasoned professors find the experience of teaching to be both deeply satisfying and personally challenging. The power of a professor in a classroom is immense. Some professors see their role in very different terms. Actually, he says before that, he says, some professors see themselves as stewards of teaching profession and, follow, and fellow learners with their students. Others see their role in different terms as agents of ideological indoctrination. All teaching involves ideology and intellectual commitments. There is no position of authentic objectivity. Every teacher as well as every student comes into the classroom with certain intellectual commitments. Some professors set as their aim the indoctrination of students into their own worldview, and many of these worldviews are both noxious and deeply troubling. A professor who acts as such an agent of indoctrination abuses the stewardship of teaching and the professorial calling, but this abuse is more widespread and dangerous than many students and their parents understand. For Christian parents and students, this should be a matter of deep concern and active awareness. The secularization of most educational institutions is an accomplished fact. Indeed, many college and university campuses are deeply antagonistic to Christian truth claims and the beliefs held by millions of students and their families. Furthermore, the leftist bent of most faculty is well documented, especially in elite institutions and within the liberal arts faculties. A good many of these professors deny this agenda, but from time to time the mask is removed. Writing at the University Diaries column on the site inside higherededucation.com, Professor of English revealed his agenda with amazing candor. Responding to an argument about the power of intellectual elites, this professor dropped any effort to hide the real agenda, and I quote, we need to encourage everyone to be in college for as many years as they possibly can be in the hope that somewhere along the line they might get some exposure to the world outside their town and to the moral ideas not exclusively derived from their parents' religion. If they don't get this in college, they're not going to get it anywhere else. A teacher of English and college advisor at Northwestern University in Illinois reveals his ideological agenda in even more shocking terms. Bill Savage reacts to the fact that the so-called conservative red states are outbreeding the blue states. This is what he says. The children of red states will seek a higher education, he explains. And that education will very often happen in blue states or blue islands in red states. For the foreseeable future, loyal ditto heads, his words, will continue to drop off their children at the dorms. After a teary-eyed hug, mum and dad will drive their SUV off to the nearest gas station, leaving their beloved progeny behind. Then what? Then they are all mine. A significant number of professors are happy to have parents spend 18 years raising their children only to drop them off at the campus to head back home and are confident that the four years or so of their college experience will be more than enough time to separate students from the beliefs, convictions, moral commitments and faith of their parents. That's our Mola. More recent studies now have suggested to us that 80 to 85% of our Christian children have lost their faith by the age of 23. Most have lost it now before they leave high school. And those are just the statistical realities. Teaching, then, is a critical thing. Being a student is a critical thing. We have to ask ourselves as men, whose students are we going to be? Whose disciples are we going to be? Now, we're quick to say, I'm sure, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm a Christian. But what does it really mean to be a disciple of Christ? To accept him as our Lord and as our sovereign. It means, actually, that in every area of our lives, his word has supremacy. We can't actually claim to be a disciple of Christ who sit at his feet on the mountain if we are not ready as men to say, Lord... I submit to you and to your word and to your sovereignty in every aspect of my life. Given that the teaching office is often abused in both the university and in our churches, there is a temptation for us to become cynical about the church and to become anti-authority of every kind. You know, interestingly, the Bible says that people recognize Jesus as one who taught with authority, as one having authority not as the teachers and scribes of their day. 
We may have even asked why Christ selected the apostles that he did. I mean, he's got these 12 apostles. He sits them down on the mountain. I've asked myself the question, why did Jesus pick this particular 12? What was special about them? Why Peter? He was a bit of a letdown, wasn't he? And uh, why James and John, the sons of thunder? Hotheads. Why Judas? The question is, of course, slightly pointless in that Mark tells us that Christ called those he willed and God's reasons are his own. If you're here today as a believer, can you really account for your salvation? Can you really give an answer as to why Christ chose you to be his student to be his disciple, to be his servant, to be his son? Can you really account for that? I mean, did you choose the family into which you would be born? Did you choose that you would be a man? Did you choose the country you would be born in? Did you bring about the circumstances of your calling in the gospel? Did you incline your heart to God's testimonies or did he incline yours you see our salvation is a free gift of mercy it's grace it's the reason we're all here this weekend as men seeking to be disciples of Christ we're here only by the grace of God and that should encourage us because when we look at this message from the mountain if we're going to be God's mountain men the first thing is we have to let go of moralistic ideas that somehow it's because of what we've done, what we've accomplished, how good we've been, how nice we are, that we have somehow been chosen to be his disciples. None of the above is true. We're here only by grace, and when you look at that motley bunch that Jesus assembled on the mountain to teach his law, it clearly wasn't because they were winner of the best disciple competition. Our salvation is free, it's unconditional kindness of God, it's his unsearchable generosity. There's nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves creditable to God where we can say, this is to my credit, it's his free electing love. The apostle who penned this very gospel, Matthew, was a loathed tax collector. Why would Jesus choose such a man? Look at the man next to you. Why did God call him? Why the one that irritates and frustrates you? Why are we the ones who have been under the hearing of the gospel and not others? Do you have adequate answers to all of those questions? No. We're recipients of his grace and the The very reason that we are here today is because God has called us to be his disciples. Why have you been given ears to hear? There are thousands, hundreds of people around you, your peers, your work colleagues in your neighborhood who have not got ears to hear. So we're a privileged people. Calvin, in his sermons on the Beatitudes, he writes this. He says, the simple fact is that everything we have is ours only because he gave it to us. So we, our persons, and everything he has put within us belong to him. This is why this is important. We are accountable to him for them. When God calls us to positions of provenance or responsibility, he does so of his own good pleasure and not as we imagine because he considers us more capable than others. He, his aim is to humble us by showing that everything depends on his grace and not on human merit. When God adopts us as his children in order to make us members of our Lord Jesus Christ and share us in his heavenly glory, what credit can men possibly claim for themselves? That is an amazing point. And it's because of this that we are accountable to God totally. Everything you have is a gift. You're not giving anything to God. So often, brothers, don't we? We think ourselves sacrificial in giving of our time, our substance, our money. 
to God. It all belongs to him anyway. And you're an inheritor of the kingdom of God, and it's all a gift. It's given to you freely. It's an inheritance. You don't work for an inheritance. You inherit it. That was the difference between the aristocracy and the peasantry. One group worked for their money. The other group inherited it. It should humble our hearts before God to know that we can offer him nothing that isn't his due already. So when he tells us what it means to be his master, when he tells us to be what it means to be his mountain men, we will then recognize that this is our calling, our duty, our responsibility. John Wesley, perhaps known to many of you as the founder of Methodism, the great preacher in England, the revivalist, who uh, traveled about 9,000 miles a year on horseback and uh, was in many respects, along with people like George Whitfield, responsible for, by the grace of God for the great awakening in England. When he had done everything, done all, this is what he asked to be written on his grave. Here lies John Wesley praying, God be merciful to me, an unprofitable servant. That's what he asked to be engraved on his headstone. Paul says, our righteousness is like filthy rags. There on the mountain, in case you're feeling unworthy to be a disciple, was Judas Iscariot listening to the message from the mountain. Maybe even at the time he was lifting cash from the treasury that's what he was doing the whole time apparently there are many failures in the church there are many letdowns and maybe one of the things you've said to yourself at times maybe even now is that well there's so much hypocrisy in the church I'm, I'm happy to be part of things I'm happy to go along and go with the flow but I'm not putting myself out I'm not going the extra mile I'm not going beyond the norm because the church is so full of failures, we may be let down. Well, how did God the Son come to choose Judas as one of the twelve, who was later called a devil? Did he not pray hard enough the night before, when he, before he selected the twelve? Had he misheard God? No, this was in the inscrutable wisdom of God. You, we see we're shocked when we see dubious deceptiveness, when we see immorality, when we see heretical, wicked people coming to prominence in the churches. Sometimes they're posing as prolific authors and pillars of the church and reformers and innovators and then suddenly some godlessness in their lives is revealed and it all comes crashing down and I can think of many examples on both sides of the Atlantic that have devastated Christians. Calvin actually lived through very turbulent times. When you look at many of our forebears in the faith, in evangelicalism, we see that still we've got it easy compared to most of them. He said this, The church, such is, such is his will, is like a net which gathers fish, both good and bad. Or like a threshing floor where straw is mixed with good grain. In essence, that is, what these thing, that is why these things exist. But what if we can see no reason for them? we should nevertheless submit to God's ordinance. The fact is, as St. Paul says concerning heresies, these things must be so that those who are truly approved by God may be plainly revealed. I have a tendency at times, I think, to worry too much about the church. Not just my own church, Christianity, the church in general in the West and its condition and so on. God is the builder and maker of his kingdom. And we are being invited, we're being called to be his men, to be his co-laborers in the establishment of that kingdom. Christians and Christian leaders may have failed you and they will fail you. And there is confusion and there can be distortion of the truth and there's mixed motives. But that doesn't mean Christ isn't on the throne. Neither should it discourage us from following hard after God. From being obedient to him. 
What are we going to do when, we're, when we stand before the Lord? So we well, so say, well, Lord, you know, well, I would have um, been faithful and obedient, but, uh, you know, this fellow over here, he really sort of shipwrecked my confidence in the faith. And blame other people. No, this is a call, in a sense, to man up on the mountain. To man up. To take responsibility. To face our calling in God as men. There are professors and teachers out there, and pastors, there are deceivers, there are liars, there are those that distort the gospel, but the man on the mountain is our teacher, he is our Lord, his word can be counted on, and his word cannot fail. And if we don't understand some of the things that have been going on in our lives, or in our city, or our community, or our churches, or our church, leave those things to God, we need to take responsibility for ourselves before the Lord. Jesus himself answered the tempter with these words, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, cited straight from Moses in Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If a judge or a magistrate is discovered perverting justice or Twisting the social order. You've probably been heard at some point today on the radio about this case of the South African uh, Paralympian who shot his girlfriend. Quite how that man could be deemed by any judge not a risk to society. I don't know. Does that mean we say, out with all judges? There's a bad judge there. <laughs> or there's a crooked police officer, out with the police. No, of course not. We still have to honor the office, and there are some who preach and teach and who lead that are rogues, flatterers, salesmen, profiteers, and so forth. But nonetheless, God is still faithful, God is still true, and the disciples did not abandon the faith because Judas betrayed the Lord. Because one man was unfaithful, the disciples didn't say, oh well. That kind of lowers our commitment requirement. I mean, I'm not as bad as Judas. He sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, so as long as I don't do something quite that bad, I'm in good shape. Nor did they say, well, obviously this doesn't work because Judas was really a devil. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away, Jesus said. Let me conclude with this. The ageless message from the ancient mountain was no longer now with a single nation this is what was happening here it was no longer the preserve of a single nation to be an example and a light to the other nations it was now for a new international people of god east and west north and south that they would be a light to the world in jesus christ as covenant keeping men you can read that in ephesians 2 that out of the two god was now making one and it's called the new covenant it's the New Testament because it was made with a new people. Sometimes we think the new covenant is, well, there must have been something peculiarly different about it. Maybe Jesus changed all the rules. Now he just says, you know, love people. Well, we'll deal with that this week. How do you know what loving anybody is? Does it have that we got a gooey feeling in our hearts? If we say, you know, I, husbands love your wives, what does that mean? That we feel sentimental all the time? We feel romantic towards them? We buy them flowers on Valentine's? Or does it mean more than that? No, the reason the covenant was new was that it was with a new people. He is now, Christ is now the living temple into which we are being built. Turn with me very quickly to Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 23 and 24 there, we read, well, let's go with verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that 
of Abel. You'll notice that uh, we come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to a general assembly, that's the church of the living God, the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. And you'll see the list of those just men there in Hebrews chapter 11. We are being built now into that same house, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 3. It's the same covenant that was with Abraham. The gospel, we're told, was preached to Abraham. It's the same covenant. It's an expansion of the covenant that was made with Moses and Israel. It's the same tree of life. New branches, Paul tells us in Romans, are being grafted into it. Dead branches are being pruned out. If you read Romans chapter 11, this is what you see about the Gentiles being grafted into the promises of Abraham. Branches that are not bearing fruit are being cut off and the Gentiles are being grafted into the one tree. And this is the tree that grows in the center of the new Jerusalem. So from the mountain, as the greater Moses, the Lord of the covenant, as an act of grace of the greater to the lesser, renews his law treaty with us and says, you are to be my people, you are to be my kingdom men, you are to be men of the mountain. This is our task. And we now keep his word as an act of love and gratitude for our salvation. What we have then, what lies ahead as we look at the Sermon on the Mount in these next few sessions, is a description of the covenant man. I'm not excluding the women. But the covenant man. Who is he? What is he like? How does he live? What principle does he live by? Because we are recipients of his grace, we're ready to live as his mountain men so that we can walk in the blessedness of the Beatitudes. We've rejected autonomy. We said we are disciples, we are students of Jesus Christ. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And as such, we are, according to the Bible, prophets, priests, and kings. That you and I, as men of God, today, as Christ's church, are prophets priests and kings, every single one of us in our calling before the Lord. Faithfulness is blessedness. Faithlessness is the way of cursing and judgment. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously in his Sermon on the Mount a series summarized the purpose of the sermon and he said this. We claim to believe that the Son of God has come into the world and has sent his own Holy Spirit into us, his own absolute power that will reside in men and make them live a quality of life like his own. He came, I say, and lived and died and rose again and sent the Holy Spirit in order that you and I might live the Sermon on the Mount. If only all of us were living the Sermon on the Mount, men would know that there is a dynamic in the Christian gospel. They would know that this is a live thing. They would not be looking for anything else. They would say, here it is. And if you read the history of the church, you will find it has always been when men have taken this sermon seriously and faced themselves in the light of it that true revival has come. And when the world sees the truly Christian man, he not only feels condemned, he is drawn, he is attracted. Then let us carefully study this sermon that claims to show what we ought to be. Let us consider it that we may see what we can be, for it not only states the demand, it points to the supply, the source of power. God give us grace to face the Sermon on the Mount seriously and honestly and prayerfully until we become living examples of it and exemplifiers of its glorious teaching. It comes to us from the mountain of the Lord to the men or the disciples of the Lord with the covenant or law of the Lord And we shall be, as his church, 
what this sermon describes. If we'll be, we will be God's mountain men, the promises that are laid out that we've read in Deuteronomy 27 from the law of God will be poured on us in our cities, in our towns, in our families, in our communities. If not, if we don't live in terms of Christ's word to us, then we can only expect judgment. And that's what Jesus himself says at the end of Matthew chapter 7. If we build with anything else, it will be swept away. So, over these next few sessions, we're going to look at uh, several key things that Jesus says in this great sermon that I hope you will find of value and will be constructive as men as we seek to live out and fulfill the calling that God has for us in the days ahead. Let's just pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for today. We thank you for a safe journey here on these uh, icy roads. We thank you for the opportunity to come away together as men, to gather around your word, to humble ourselves before you as your disciples, as your students, as your servants, and what a privilege as your sons. We thank you that we have been called out to be your people. We can't account, Lord, for our salvation. There is no thing that we can point to in our lives that makes us worthy of being called to be yours. But we thank you that you have, that you did, and we pray that you would help us to be the men that you have now called us to be, that you would put your word in our hearts, you would put your spirit in our lives, and that we will live and walk in the power of your truth for time and for eternity in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.